Welcome to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. I am your host, A, and this is a podcast about the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice. You might hear a color commentator in the background, and that is little A, my cat, and she loves to provide a little color commentary here and there. I hope you enjoy. This first episode is about the Protestant Reformation and Continental Europe. So you might be wondering, A, why are you starting this all the way back into the 1500s? If you knew that it started in the 1500s, I know that this isn't something that is really heavily taught in secular education um, in school systems. But anyhow, why I decided to start here it was because... As a therapist, we start off therapy doing something called an intake session. In this intake session, we ask a person about their background, their history, what is bringing them in there today, even about their families. And if we are going to understand the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice, then we also need to be taking a look back at how evangelicalism started in the first place. And it started through the Protestant Reformation. Evangelicalism is a rebranding of Protestantism. And it had a change because of the etymology of the words. So Protestant came from the Latin. That means Protestantem. And that that the meaning of that is to protest. So what were the Protestants protesting? They were protesting Catholicism and Catholic rule by the church in Rome. So in time, Catholics and Protestants were able to find peace. And then that's whenever there started to be a shift of what Protestants saw themselves as and uh, and the words that they use to describe themselves. So Protestants started calling themselves more and more evangelicals, which comes from the Greek evangelion, meaning good news. And this is a direct reference to the New Testament whenever the New Testament describes that there were these women who went to the tomb of Jesus and they saw that he wasn't there. So they were like, oh my goodness, like he has risen from the dead. So then they started telling people in their language, good news, good news. And then this was translated in the Bible in Greek um, to Evangelion. And then this is how the evangelicals got their name. So what about exvangelical? Where does that come from? So people started leaving the evangelical church, and we'll get more into that in future podcast episodes about why that is. In 2016, the term exvangelical was coined, and that means a person who was in the evangelical church and left the evangelical church. So in this podcast episode, we are going to be taking a look into the Protestant Reformation history in continental Europe because that's where it started. 
And then we'll start breaking down the Protestant Reformation in future episodes and, and how it spread. But these major players in the Protestant Reformation were Germany, Switzerland, and France. So that's where our podcast episode takes us today. Let's start off talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr. was actually named after this Martin Luther, but that was about 400 years later. So this Martin Luther was born in the year 1483, and he lived in between the years of 1483 to 1546. So Martin Luther, he was very scholarly. He received a bachelor's and master's from the esteemed University of Erfurt. And Erfurt, it was basically seen as, say, a Harvard or a Yale today. And it was very rare to receive higher education or really any education at all. It was saved for the elite. So it was very substantial for Martin Luther to have received his bachelor's and master's. He studied a master's of theology from the Order of Hermits of St. Augustine. So let's just think about this and, and what name they chose for themselves. The Order of Hermits. I mean, this just described the order to a T. They were hermits in a way. It was a very strict faction of the monks, and it was about quietness and meekness and really not stirring up any trouble. So he wanted to do this because he was so intellectual and wanted to learn more, and he would have preferred to stay quieter and learn rather than being more vocal. He pursued a PhD in theology that was interrupted by a request of going to Rome. So whenever you were summoned by Rome, you had to go. Rome ran the show in Europe at that time. And he was ordered to go to Rome to defend why he was in this strict order because Rome was like, this is too legalistic. This is too fundamentalist. And we don't support this. And Luther went because he truly believed in this strict order. And whenever he went there to defend his cause and his beliefs, he was unsuccessful. But this really shaped the future of his life, because whenever he went to Rome, he realized, okay, I have dedicated my life to the Catholic Church. I mean, pursuing a PhD, receiving a bachelor's and a master's. And then he says, actually, never mind. I don't want to be involved in the Catholic Church. I mean, for him, this was huge. It was a really big life change for him. And he didn't like the pomp and circumstance of the Roman church. So what he did was he decided to put in a work resignation, if you will. So imagine putting a work resignation whenever you've left a job on the front door of the building where you work. I could never imagine that. Um, I mean, that takes guts. Well, that is exactly what Martin Luther did. 
he made his work resignation and it was called the 95 Theses. And the 95 Theses were 95 reasons that he had run with the Catholic Church that he had dedicated his life to. And I'm not going to read all the 95 Theses. Um, you can read it for yourself if you'd like, but I'm just going to share with you the highlight reel here. So Luther believed that the Bible was the only religious authority, which meant that he did not believe that Rome, anyone in the priesthood, any one of the clergy members had a religious authority. Secondly, he denounced indulgences, and that is how the Catholic Church functioned. They functioned by getting payments by people, and they promised these people if they gave the church payments, that then they would be able to go to heaven. Now, let's look at the economic system here of the time. There was really no middle class. And so it was, you have the upper class and then you have poverty. And so the people living in poverty, the way that the system was designed, they knew that they were never going to experience heaven on earth. And they knew that they were going to live in poverty because of the way that the system was designed. So they were paying of indulgences, which lessened their money even more because they thought, well, maybe I could have heaven in the afterlife. And this was a way to really get people in poverty under their thumb. So um, what Luther was basically saying was that there could be spiritual, economic, and social equality. Then this last part was that Luther believed that there could be salvation from hell through grace and faith. So grace meaning just that God was good. And so God would save anyone. It didn't matter what you did. And faith through believing that Jesus had died and that he is no longer dead and that he lives forever and that it was to basically save a person from hell and create a person to be good. And this, uh, this phrase born again. So having this new life, and this was very different than what the Catholic Church was preaching. They, they uh, were saying that it was through indulgences and being a good person, and then maybe you could go to heaven, but there wasn't really this assurance. So now Luther is saying, actually, you can have assurance, and it doesn't matter how much money you pay to the church. And this was so controversial because the Catholic Church was like, oh, no. No, 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 no. If people believe in this, our whole church, our economy, our social system, everything is going to collapse because this was where everything was built around, um, starting with the Holy Roman Empire. After Luther resigned, he had to go to a court of law and it was called the Diet of Worms. A terrible name, I know. Every time I think of that, I think about sitting down to dinner one day at a very nice restaurant and then just uh, be given this plate of worms and being told, eat it. And uh, 
that's just how I picture like Martin Luther and what he was experiencing. Although that's not exactly what it was like, but it seemed a little bit rough for Luther because now, although Luther resigned from his position of being monk through the Catholic church at the diet of worms, he was excommunicated. So the Catholic church was like, well, now that you don't believe in us, you can go to hell. And the Catholic church believed through excommunication that the church could decide if someone was going to go to hell, if they were not following through with the Catholic church's beliefs. And this was hard for Luther because Luther questioned throughout his life if what he did was right, because then he didn't have a fallback on Catholicism anymore because he was excommunicated. So he was like crossing his fingers and he's like, well, I, sh- I sure hope that Protestantism is right. <laughs> he uh, withdrew from the public eye. So everything goes full circle uh, with him joining the Order of Hermits to now withdrawing from the public eye. And he married a woman named Catherine of Boa, and together they raised a family. So Luther had controversial beliefs, and he was writing about them more and more after he was excommunicated from the church. And it seemed somewhat like a playground argument between the Catholic Church and Luther, like one saying, you go to hell. No, you go to hell. No, you go to hell. This was basically what happened for the rest of Luther's life. So Luther was misogynistic in so many ways, but I'm just going to list a couple of them here for you. Uh, So he said that women were made by God with broad hips to sit at home and condoned polygamy because of biblical patriarchs. So although men were able to have multiple wives, women could not have multiple husbands. And just this misogyny is reflective of uh, the general evangelicalism movement today, where women are seen as a less than sex than men, and men are granted more powers than women in the church. Now, the second controversy that Luther had was that he called the Pope the Antichrist. Again, this is reflective of the evangelical church today that looks at current events and interprets them based on revelation, creating conspiracy theories, and then these fear tactics keep people involved in the faith. So the last part here is that Luther was racist and he was anti-Semitic. He advocated for the destruction of synagogues and forbade rabbis to be religious uh, teachers. And well, that's what he was asking for anyway. And he started asking for this because he said, well, my teachings are out there. And by this time, Protestantism in Germany was being called Lutheranism, which is ironic to me and a little bit funny in a way, because 
here were these Protestant leaders who are saying you should have no other gods except for God. And then these different denominations were being called after the men that started them. But I digress. Anyhow, so Luther was saying, well, because the Jews didn't convert to Lutheranism, now they must pay the consequences. And he started writing these manuscripts that were very anti-Semitic. He, uh, one of the most um, infamous manuscripts that he published was in 1543. So that was near his death. And it was called The Jews and Their Little Lies. I mean, how terrible is that? You know, I'm just, oh, you can't see me right now, but I'm shaking my head. So in Hitler's Mein Kampf, meaning my struggle, Hitler named Martin Luther one of history's greatest reformers. And in Nazi Germany and in even just the rise of Nazi Germany, how Germans who were religious were convinced of practicing anti-Semitism and even condoning the annihilation and abuse of Jews was through Martin Luther's writings. And it was just that his writings were regurgitated in Nazi propaganda. Um, there was even this pamphlet created by the Nazis called Martin Luther on the Jews away with them. And this was passed out uh, just on a pretty regular basis, I, I guess. Um, and this convinced, again, religious Germans that anti-Semitism uh, and genocide and abuse of the Jews was okay. So this is the dark side of Martin Luther that really isn't talked that much about in Protestantism. But even if we look at um, the colonialism of, of Protestantism that continues on today, uh, in certain aspects, it is there. there's these racist undertones there. But I'll talk about that in the future. The more radical Luther's writings became, the more radical the Protestant movement became, as well as violent. So in 1525, there was the German Peasants' War. So the peasants said, hey, Luther promised us social and spiritual equality, so we might as well start a rebellion and overthrow the nobles. And we can do this in a violent way. So peasants formed militias. And some of these militias had militants as large as 40,000. That is huge. That is a very substantial uh, guerrilla forces that were moving in as a result of this religious movement. So a hundred thousand peasants died. And after a hundred thousand peasants died, then Martin Luther was like, actually, uh, I don't condone violence. So if, if we're thinking about this, though, his writings were violent. He was encouraging violence 
against Jewish people. So what was it that he said, oh, actually, I don't condone this violence. And it might have been as part of propaganda of encouraging people to continue being Protestants after there was a bloodbath of Protestants trying to have this uprising. Who knows? Um, there, there could be a lot of different reasons. But because Luther was like, okay, stop this violence, the violence was stopped for a brief period of time, and then the violence increased. For this next one, I wouldn't suggest that you have children nearby, unless if you're okay with having children read the book of Judges or the book of Leviticus, because this one is pretty graphic, and it's the end of the Kingdom of Munster in 1536. A group of radical Protestants, the Anabaptists, that are still around today, you might know Anabaptists as Mennonites, they attempted to create a totalitarian communist theocracy in Munster called a New Jerusalem. Again, this is a reference to Revelation because they believed what Luther said. And just a reminder here, Luther said that the Pope was the Antichrist. So now they started preparing for the end of times. There was an Anabaptist leader called Melchior Hoffman, and he declared divine appointed leadership. And he said that he was appointed by God to lead the Anabaptists because he was one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And these two witnesses were the first sign that the end of the world was coming. And they were uh, pretty much these prophets saying that they were spoken to by God, that this was going to happen, and that they were preparing for mass conversion of people so that people could go up in the rapture rather than face destruction at the end of the world. So Melchior says, hey, I'm one of the two witnesses. So people started believing him. And Hoffman, instead of encouraging conversion, he was like, look, these Catholics are not going to convert to Protestantism. We already tried. Again, he's picking this up from Luther. And then Hoffman is saying, so if they're, got, if, if they're not going to convert, we might as well just unleash violence. And guess what? Uh, God told me he supports this violence, so go at it. So then all these Protestants were acting violently towards the Catholics. And as a result of this, Hoffman was imprisoned in 1533 because Hoffman was a threat to society at that time, the Catholic religion, and again, the economy. So there was this random baker. His name was Jan Mathis. Now, I, I don't know what kind of a baker he was, if he was a good baker or what have you, but I've been to Germany before, and let me tell you, their bread is out of this world. It is so good, and now I'm just thinking about having some really good German rye bread and um, other German goodies and stuff. So anyhow... Um, Jan Mathis was a baker, and he tells the Anabaptists, guess what? I'm actually the second prophet. Um, I was talked to 
by God and God told me the end of times is coming. So people started following Mathis and Mathis was like, I'm going to take this a step further than my predecessor Hoffman. So Mathis ended up staging a rebellion in Munster, Germany. And at the time, the person ruling Munster was Prince Bishop Franz von Waldeck. And this Prince Bishop, it was a religious leader as well as a political leader. So Mathis, in his rebellion, he overthrew the Prince Bishop and seized the city along with a group of Anabaptists. Then the Anabaptists told the Catholics inside of Munster, hey, uh, if you don't convert to Protestantism, we are going to kill you or run you out of town. But if you convert to Protestantism and we baptize you as a Protestant, you're going to be cool. So there was a mass conversion, a mass force conversion. Let's phrase it that way, of Catholics to Protestantism. And then the people who didn't want that were either killed or run out from the city. And whenever Mathis was leader of Munster, and mind you, so the Anabaptists are inside of the the gates of Munster, and then outside are the Catholics and the Prince Bishop. So um, now Mathis inside of Munster, he said, actually, uh, currency is going to be illegal because this is a totalitarian communist theocracy. We don't believe in money anymore. So let's just get rid of it. Then he said, and let's just get rid of owning property because anywhere is God's land. And so people can live anywhere they want. And it was complete chaos and was more of an anarchy than a theocracy at that time. So on Easter Sunday of 1534, Mathis prophesied that justice was coming and God was going to judge the wicked. And he deemed the wicked as Catholics and uh, the Prince Bishop. So Mathis had this really big ego and Mathis decided to take a group of only 30 Anabaptists with him to attack the Prince Bishop outside the walls and his Catholic supporters. As a result, um, it was not the Catholics who lost, but it was the Anabaptists or Protestants who lost. And it was a complete bloodbath. And Mathis had his head severed, placed on a pole at the front of the city, and his genitals were nailed to the city gate. Because that was the Catholics saying, this is this is what will happen to Protestants if they're going to try to start an uprising again. Then another leader rose up because the Anabaptists are still inside the walls of Munster right now while the Catholics are having their fun with uh, <laughs> uh, that, that. That was a grim choice of words, but... 
they were having their fun with the bodies of Mathis and, uh, and the other Protestants. So anyhow, um, they're Anabaptists still inside of the walls of Munster and another leader rose up John of Leyden and John of Leyden believed he was a successor of King David. And he was like, yeah, so I'm royalty and even dressed up in royal regalia and had absolute power. So imagine within a very short period of time from going to communism to then complete monarchy. Um, yeah, it, it was a shift of night and day. And instead of calling the inside of the city of Munster the New Jerusalem, he called it the New Zion because he was like, I got to rebrand this for this new era of John of Leyden. So Leyden legalized polygamy and he married 16 women. Again, this was within a short period of time. So I'm just trying to picture this wedding here. Like if, if he had 16 weddings or if he just had a few weddings at a time or just married all the 16 women at once and it was just this whole complete lineup i'm trying to picture it um yeah because i'm just uh just interested you know how how this worked but anyhow so this happened and then laden led by charisma and this promise that whoever held out this besiege, that they would have eternal salvation. And he would say, God's power is my strength. And he would say this in a very charismatic type way. And this is what caused people to follow after him was his charisma and speaking these um, powerful words. And so although people were starving inside of Munster, by this point, they were like, well, we are still going to follow John of Leyden. That was until it was just the, the starvation was too much and um, the Catholics overtook Munster again in June of 1535, where Leyden and other leaders were tortured, finally executed in the city marketplace, and after the initial burning, their tons were pulled out with tons before each was killed with a burning dagger thrust through their heart. Their bodies were placed in three cages and hung up from the steeple of St. Lambert's Church, and the remains were left to be picked at by carrion birds. Fifty years later, the bones were removed, but the cages are still at the church tower. So, uh, yeah, if you'd ever like to visit Munster and see some cages, you can think of this story. So, um, there was the Thirty Years' War, and the Thirty Years' War was primarily based in Germany. However, it spread across Europe, and why it was primarily based in Germany was because the Protestant Reformation had its roots in Germany because of Luther. So although Luther had passed by this point, his legacy was still being carried on. And it was one of the longest, most brutal wars in history. There was 8 million deaths from military battles, famine, and disease caused by the war lasting from 1616 to 1648. And again, th this was less about religion and more about the powers that be and how that affects societal structures, economics, 
and um, and rulings and such. So peace in Germany, it was a gradual process. There was first this um, first permanent legal basis by the 1555 Peace of Augsburg. Uh, and this was the first permanent legal basis for the coexistence of Lutheranism and Catholicism. But still, there were some issues in finding peace in Germany until the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, ending the Thirty Years' War. And this was a legal document leading to the coexistence of Protestants and Catholics all over Europe. We're going to switch gears here and talk about Switzerland and France. Now, the Protestant movements in Switzerland and France were very intertwined, and it was because of sharing similar cultures and language and such. So Zwingli was the main leader of the Protestant movement or the early Protestant movement in Switzerland. And he had some similarities of beliefs with Luther, but he didn't agree with everything that Luther said. For instance, he shared beliefs with Luther about that salvation was through faith and also predestination. So uh, Luther believed in predestination, which means that God knows about a person before they were born, and God knows if a person is going to become a Protestant or not. Um, and Zwingli believed this as well. However, something that Luther believed that Zwingli did not believe was Luther thought that whenever a person took communion, that literally the bread and the wine of communion would transform into the literal body of Jesus in your mouth and the literal blood of Jesus in your mouth. Like, wow, that is graphic. No, thank you. So Zwingli was also like, no, thank you. That that sounds very gross. I I am not a vampire. That that's not what I do. So Zwingli said that he believed communion was rather a memorial of the death of Jesus and reminding uh, Protestants about why Jesus died and rose again and seeing a sign of dedication of the faith to Protestantism. That, that's what Zwingli believed. So Luther was not happy about this. Luther had uh, grown a big ego and thought that everyone should be Lutherans and believing every single thing that he taught. So in 1529, Zwingli met Luther and other Protestant leaders, and Luther's whole objective here in mind was to convince Zwingli to believe everything that he taught, and this did not happen. And this is how denominations started breaking out as a result of early Protestantism. So even in the beginning of Protestantism, there was disagreements 
And we even see this in modern Protestantism, evangelicalism today of very strong opinions about their belief systems and not wanting to engage with other Protestants because of differences of beliefs. So further on with Zwingli, he had some theologies about music and baptism, which was unique to him. He believed that music was okay, but it was okay for babies. He was like, that's it. Music, the the whole intent for music is just to put babies to sleep. It's not for adults and it's definitely not for worship. He was so anti-music and worship that he even had any instruments, including pipe organs, be removed from churches. This is very hard to remove a pipe organ from a church. I don't know if you've been in a old church, in a very historical church, but they have these ginormous pipes that will go from one to two stories high uh, so that an organ can play this um, very full music filling the space and, and even so that people can hear it outside of the church. And Zwingli had these removed. So this was a very big uh, architectural undertaking to do this. And he asked that this be done in all of the Protestant churches in Zurich at the time. So he had another theology of baptism. So similar to Catholics, he also believed in infant baptism. So he thought that um, if a baby had Protestant parents, that that baby was born into Protestantism and the baby was automatically saved into Protestantism. And so these infants were baptized, and that was a symbol of salvation. So he referred to the Christian church as the new Israel of God. Again, this is anti-Semitic, and it is this belief that um, Israel was no longer like the Old Testament or the Torah said that Israel was no longer the the people, the children of God, and that they had their chance, and now it's the Protestants. The Protestants are now the children of God. They are now the people of God, and this was the anti-Semitic rhetoric that was being taught at the time and still has echoes into the evangelical church today. Zwingli condoned violence, and there were two wars. Well, one ended before it even began, (laughs) but they were called the Capel Wars. Not to be confused with Chappelle, it's Capel. So the first Capel War was in 1529, and there was a mobilization of Protestant troops in Catholic territories. And the reason for this was a retaliation because there was a Roman Catholic priest that had converted to Protestantism and the priest was executed. And this happened in a Catholic territory. 
So the Protestants were like, hey, well, we will show you and we will unleash war. Well, peace ended up being negotiated uh, before the fight began. And so the war dissolved. However, a couple of years later, there was a second Capel War. And this happened in 1531. Zwingli incited violence in Zurich, mobilizing Protestant troops upon Catholic areas. So what happened as a result of Protestantism was there was redlining, just like how there was redlining because of uh, race, racism. There was redlining back in the 1500s because of religion. So Zwingli said, hey, go into the Catholic areas and kill whoever doesn't want to be converted. So that's what the Protestants tried doing. However, the Protestants were defeated in only under an hour by the Catholics. And Zwingli died along with 500 other Protestants. So it was quick and it was bloody and it did not turn out how Zwingli thought it was going to be. So next there was Henrik Bullringer. We'll just call him Bullringer. What a name, right? So Bullringer, he led a Protestant movement after Zwingli's death in Switzerland. And the Protestant movement was more tolerant and peaceful. I know this might have been confusing considering Bullringer's name. It sounds like, you know, a name where he's going to go fight, but he was actually pretty peaceful and tolerant of the Catholics. And so peace was established amongst the Protestants and Catholics as a result of Bullringer's leadership. Now, this moves us into France and the different crossovers of France and Switzerland and how this occurred. Buckle up for this one because France has a lot of conspiracies that affected the Protestant movement. So noble houses in France were conspiring to manipulate the monarchy and overthrow the monarchy. So they were looking at whatever ways they could to rise to power. Disclaimer, my French isn't very good. I'm trying to use Babel on my phone, but it's still a process. So I'm going to try my best here. So Valois and Bourbon were ruling houses and they were looking for land because the more land you had, the more power you had at that time. So the Valois and the Bourbon were looking for land and they wanted the throne. So they were looking at how they could accomplish this and they could accomplish this through either the extermination of the Protestants or Catholics because the Valois were Catholic. The Bourbon were Protestant. 
So they were looking, hey, you know, if we exterminate either the Protestants or the Catholics, then we could rise to power. Or even if we could just tolerate them in a way to keep them around, that could also help too. So there was Francis I, and he was from the House of Valois, and he would fluctuate policy of repression depending upon his political desires aligning with either the Pope, Ottoman Turks, or German Lutherans. So Lutheranism started becoming a religious powerhouse and started becoming part of foreign policy. So if France was going to make a good political move, then they would have to fluctuate what they allowed in terms of religion to be practiced in the country of France. So in 1534, play cards were um, placed in Paris, and it was criticizing Parisian mass. And they were um, very crude against the Catholics. And the Catholics were very mad that the Protestants did this. And as a result, the Catholics retaliated and Protestants ended up fleeing from Paris. So a couple of names to remember here are Pharrell. Uh, He, not Pharrell like the singer, but Pharrell uh, went to Geneva, Switzerland, and Calvin went to Basel, France. So France and Spain made peace in 1559, and they were able to make peace under Henry II's rule. And they did this by increasing the repression, or shall we say, increasing the persecution of Protestants. Protestants in France became known as the Huguenots at the time. The origin for the word is unknown. However, the possible origin looks like that German and Flemish words were combined to describe home worship. So Huguenots denied worship in sanctuaries and churches. They worshiped in homes, so they had house churches and therefore became known as the Huguenots. So the House of Valois was close with the Catholic House of Guise, and the House of Guise ascended Mary, Queen of Scots, and the Huguenot family um, was also close, well, the Huguenot family of Admiral uh, Coligny was close with the House of Valois. So the House of Valois was walking a tightrope of of political compromise. Let's just put it that way. They were trying to figure out what they could do that would be in their favor to rule as long as what they could, which meant being friends with the Catholic House of Geis and the Huguenot family of Admiral Coligny. So the Huguenots started getting nervous, though, 
that the House of Valois was getting close with the Catholic House of Geis, because uh, I will be talking about it in a future episode about Mary, Queen of Scots, but she was very notorious um, for what her beliefs were in Catholicism and how she believed that Protestants should be treated. So Huguenots started realizing, hey, this violence doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, so we might need to figure out some political actions to help us. So the Huguenots ended up creating a conspiracy theory and started spreading it across France. And it was called the Conspiracy of Ambois. And it was an attempt to assassinate the guys' party leaders and transfer power to the House of Bourbon because the House of Bourbon was Huguenot. So the conspiracy failed. Francis II of Valois died and was succeeded by his brother, Charles IX. So the queen mother at the time in France was Catherine de' Medici's. You might have heard of her before. She was a badass in her own right, but she was also very tricky. She understood foreign policies very well and how to play the game of foreign policies. And this made for a very unstable relationship between the Protestants and the Catholics in France at the time. So Catherine de Medici's, she took the lead of ruling France and granted Huguenots limited toleration in restricted areas, again, the redlining. And she did this through the Edict of 1562. However, the House de Guise was not happy with this. So Francois... Duke de Guise, so this was a Duke of the House of Guise, Francois, realized that there were Huguenots that were worshiping outside the prescribed limits that Catherine de' Medici's had set. So then he was like, well, I'm going to take care of this. And he opened fire on the Huguenots. And this set off the massacre of Vassy, and the massacre of Vassy, it was just a bloodbath. Um, all these Huguenots were killed. And um, at that time, it appeared that they were unarmed. However, we're not exactly sure about that because not much was written on the massacre of Vassy. So the Huguenots had a change of leadership and they started being led by Louis I. And Louis I was Prince de Condé of the House of Bourbon. So the Huguenots started looking towards um, royalty for help because they were realizing that they were the underdog in this and they needed some help from people and power. So unfortunately, though, um, Condé was killed in the first of three religious wars that happened between the Huguenots and the, um, and the Catholics. And during this time, though, however, uh, Fr Francois Duc de Guise was assassinated. So now there is a change of leadership. 
Henry succeeded uh, Francois, Duc de Guise, and believed in the new leader of the Huguenots, Caligny. And so now it seems like uh, there could be religious tolerance there, but uh, not so quickly because Catherine de' Medici's was still around and she was looking at all the power players and what was going to be most helpful for her and for her house. So after 10 years of war and other conflicts, Catherine decided that she was going to forge a marriage of Henry of Navarre. And he was from the house of Bourbon, the person who I had just mentioned, and marry Henry de um henry of bourbon to her daughter marguerite de valois and her daughter marguerite was a catholic so catherine is like well all protestants and all catholics are welcome to this wedding so come on and there so there were a lot of catholics a lot of uh protestants or, or huguenots at this wedding and the leaders of all parties came to Paris for the wedding on August 18th, 1572. During this wedding, the Duke of Guise attempted to assassinate Caligny. That's right. There was literally a political assassination attempt at a wedding. So um, what a name, the Duke of Guise, right? This was all a guise, though, <laughs> uh, by Catherine de' Medici uh, to be able to keep Catholics in power. There was an investigation for this assassination attempt, and Catherine de' Medici, she felt threatened because she was like, oh no, like if this investigation goes further, they're going to find out that I was involved in the assassination attempt, and they might also find out other things about me. So she decided, okay, rather than tolerating the Huguenots or Protestants, she decided, kill them all, just exterminate them. So Catherine de' Medici and the Duke of Guise tried to wipe out the leaders of the Huguenot party and the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572. This was literally one week after the wedding. So imagine this. Her daughter gets married and she's like, yeah, one, one week later, I feel like having a war while my kid is on her honeymoon. So there was um, this whole plan to exterminate the French Huguenots and the assassination of Caligny was completed and it was supervised by the Duke of Guise and, um, and then carried out by Roman Catholic nobles and other citizens for the killings of other French Huguenots. So during this time, too, homes and shops of the Huguenots were pillaged and occupants were brutally murdered and many bodies were thrown into the Seine River. So although this happened over a two-day period of time in Paris from August 24th and 25th, 
violence persisted in outlier areas of France. So violence continued until early October in the areas of Rouen, uh, Lyon, Burgess, Orleans, and Bordeaux. So um, this was a very long bloodbath. Death counts vary depending upon if the writer was Catholic or Protestant. Catholics said the death counts were 2,000 Protestants. However, Protestant accounts say that it was 70,000 Protestants who died. So historians are not really sure because of um, the different ways that history was told because of different perceptions and wanting to be seen in different lights, whether they were Catholic or Protestant. So Catherine de Medici's intent for this massacre was to be able to create fear in the Protestants, make them silent, and then the Catholics would be back to being powerful in France. However, this is now what happened. So there were still French Huguenots that existed. It caused a revival, actually, of French Huguenots, which means that there were Catholics that converted to Protestantism, and it revived a hatred between Catholics and Huguenots. And the Huguenots used to be somewhat peaceful, but they abandoned those principles of peace and obedience and respect of authority, and they started becoming very violent. So the Catholic and Huguenot violence became very disorganized, very chaotic. There was no real clear intent of the violence anymore, and because of this chaos, Charles IX was assassinated by a radical Catholic, even though that Charles IX sided with Catholics. So it, things had become a real mess. Let's just put it that way. So next in line to the throne was going to be Henry IV of Bourbon. And Henry IV was a Huguenot. So that means that Protestants could be ruling. However, not so fast, though. Because of all of these laws that came directly from Rome as well. Protestants were not granted access to owning land. And to become king, you had to be able to rule all of the land. So for Henry IV to become king, he had to renounce Protestantism and convert to Catholicism. So by that point... Henry IV was like, you know what, if this is what is going to be, bring peace, I'm going to renounce my faith and convert to Catholicism. So that's what he ended up doing. And he signed the Edict of Nantes um, after that in 1598 for the Huguenots to be tolerated. And this helped to reduce the violence and granted Huguenots limited areas, again, redlining to worship. But he started giving Protestants full rights to participate in public life. So this even meant uh, being able to own land and the edict remained until 1685. 
The last forefather that I'm going to talk about is John Calvin. And John Calvin was a French humanist and a doctor of law. So like Luther, he was also an intellectual. And his conversion from Catholicism to Protestantism was very gradual. And a lot of this was because he was philosophical. He would sit in Paris and talk about philosophy with Renaissance humanists. And as he was hearing more and more about humanism and he liked it, he was like, I don't see how humanism and Catholicism align because Protestantism was talking about this social equality and this was at the heart of Renaissance humanism. So that's how his conversion became gradual. Well, he lived in Paris until 1533 and left because of the hostility of the government. And this was due to Catherine de Medici wanting to exterminate the Huguenots. So he ended up moving to the town of Basel in France. And this was whenever he started exploring more of religion and what his religious beliefs are. And he started doing a lot of writing. And he got the Institutes of the Christian Religion published in 1536. And this became a manual of Protestant theology. So we're, we're going to get into the nitty gritty here. So hang on. Um, it focused on the knowledge of God before faith. So the knowledge of God had to be the foundation before faith was established. And this is still something that is very much believed by evangelicals today, which is why teaching is a very prominent part of evangelicalism because of that belief of knowledge being the foundation. So he believed that salvation was accomplished through faith um, and not by good things that a person did. However, he believed in predestination and Predestination isn't believed by all evangelicals now. It's mostly believed by the Calvinist denomination. But basically, Calvin's idea of predestination was that you would know if you were predestined, if you professed the faith, if you said, yes, this is what I believe, and it is alignment with Calvinism and Protestantism then he believed that a person must be dedicated to following biblical principles and be very self-disciplined. Then this last part where he believed that people would know if they were predestined is if they really loved having communion, um, where they would get very excited having that bread and the wine in communion. I know for me, having communion, oh, sometimes I would just try to swallow the cracker whole. I mean, those crackers were, I, I think, probably the worst crackers I have ever had in my whole life. So I guess if I was following through Calvin, I would definitely not be predestined. Anyhow, um, he believed that, same thing as Luther, that the Bible had no errors in it and that it was the only authority. 
And because it was the only authority, that meant that he didn't believe that Rome should have control or the Catholic Church should have any control and that people should only follow what the Bible said. He was a big fan of music. He thought that biblical passages should be set to music and people learn the scriptures through that way. He was a really big fan of that. So that was very different than, say, Zwingli, who you know, took organs out of churches. So what ended up happening was whenever um, Calvin was pretty much in a, a nomadic-like state because of what was happening with France, it was very up and down. First, it's supportive of Huguenots and tolerant. Then France wants to exterminate. And with this waxing and waning of tolerance for the Protestants, Calvin started traveling. Well, he was traveling in Geneva and ended up connecting with Pharrell, who I mentioned earlier. And they had a lot of good conversations. And Pharrell convinced Calvin to stay. He said, hey, I really need you here because there are serious issues with um how Protestantism is going in Geneva, because here's the background of Geneva, Switzerland, and what happened. There was a forced conversion, and this forced conversion was a result of Geneva receiving military aid from another town called Bern, and Bern was Protestant, and Bern said, hey, we'll only help you with military aid as long as you become Protestant. So Geneva lacked enthusiasm because they were being forced to convert. Whenever a person is forced to do something, they're not going to be enthusiastic about it. Free will is something to be enthusiastic about, but not so much being forced. So this caused resistance to religious and moral reform almost until Calvin's death. There was even riots about the icons. So what icons are, they started during the Holy Roman Empire where there were all these depictions of saints and biblical passages, and they would sometimes be inlaid with precious stones and precious metals such as gold. And they had the funding for this because of the indulgences. So a lot of times it was the poor people who were paying for these icons. Well, Protestants believed that these icons were idols, which violated what they believed about the Bible. So they would be smashing these icons. So they're smashing very expensive pieces that not wealthy people had funded for generations, for, for years and years. And this caused a lot of tension between the Protestants and the Catholics in Geneva and led to rioting in the mid-1520s. So the main issue was the icons and also excommunication. And with excommunication, Protestants didn't believe in it. They didn't believe that there could be a person who said, you're going to go to hell or not. They believed that that was ultimately between a person and God. And because of that, it led to the expulsion of Calvin and Pharrell from Geneva in 1538. 
Kelvin moved from Geneva to Strasbourg, Germany for a hot minute. Strasbourg, Germany no longer exists. It's actually Strasbourg, France now. And this city has gone between being in Germany and being in France, depending upon what war happened and what war agreement there was. But I've been there before. It's a very beautiful city um, and would definitely recommend visiting if, if you get the chance. But he moved to Strasbourg, became a pastor for French-speaking refugees, ended up meeting a widow named Idolette, got married to her. They had a really happy marriage. And um, unfortunately, they had no children that were able to survive infancy, but uh, historians believe that they had a very good marriage. So they were married in 1540. And then Calvin was invited back to Geneva in 1541, so only a year after they had been married. Calvin was invited back to Geneva because the Protestants did not have strong leadership and the movement became chaotic, similar to what it was like in France and the chaos there. And they saw Calvin as being a very systematic leader, a leader that they needed for the movement there. So he became involved in something called the ecclesiastical ordinances. And this, the, the whole purpose of this was for educating townspeople, especially children, about the ways of Protestantism. And it, it was basically this plan to have a mass conversion as a result of educating people about Protestantism, starting from as young as what they could educate, because they knew that children had more flexible minds to start believing this and realize that if they start teaching children these Protestant ways, that then this belief system might last for generations. Calvin developed a conceptualization of the church that is still in use today in evangelical churches. He broke down roles that should be in evangelical churches, which were pastors and teachers were allowed to preach and explain the scriptures. Then there were elders representing the congregation to be the administration for the church. Lastly, there were deacons to attend to its charitable responsibilities. Then there was a guiding of disciplinary actions for the Protestant church that was enforced by pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. And here were the laws of Protestantism that are instilled in use today in a lot of different ways. So there was an abolition of superstition. So even that belief of um, the bread becoming the body of Christ and the wine becoming the blood of Christ, that was looked at as being superstition. So anything that had some kind of mysticism to it, it was not allowed in Protestantism. Then there was an enforcement of sexual morality. So this was an introduction to purity culture and the enforcement of that, and that a person needed to be participating in purity culture in order to be accepted in the Protestant church. Then there was a regulation of taverns. So this is reflective of what a lot of evangelicals believe, and um, that is not to get drunk or a lot of um, 
denominations do not believe that a person should put any what they call a mind-altering substance or what would mean an addictive substance into your body. So this could be um, no cannabis, no alcohol, no opioids, nothing that has an addictive potential. And, um, and so this goes all the way back to what uh, Calvin was talking about with regulation of taverns. Then there was also measures against dancing, gambling, and swearing. So still in the evangelical church today, no gambling or swearing is permitted. And in a lot of the evangelical churches, there are restrictions on dancing. So whenever a person would not follow these actions, the potential could be arrest and or death. So the consequences were severe. It is not the same consequences that are today in evangelical churches. The struggle between Protestants and Catholics lasted until 1555, which was 14 years after the arrival of Calvin and his wife, Idolette. So during the peacetime, Calvin worked on a series of commentaries of New and Old Testament books and dedicated the commentaries often to European rulers, which was somewhat diplomatic, but also passive aggressive. He had essentially dedicated his life to educating people about Protestantism and his ways of education have lasted over 400 years. Calvin died in 1564. Historians say he died being worn out by responsibility and suffered from a multitude of ailments. But I guess I would say Calvin died of being burnt out by church ministry. So that's all the time we have for today. Until next time, I'm your host, A, and this was the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. Thank you.